Please welcome Dr. Kersing. Thank you. Um, good morning, everybody, and thank you for inviting me back to your uh, annual meeting again. I, um, most of you may or may not know, actually, I'm a Mohs micrographic surgeon, so you may wonder uh, what this guy is doing here speaking about uh, psoriasis. We're going to discuss about scalp conditions and scalp dermatosis and scalp psoriasis. So I'll tell you a little bit about my background and how I, how I got involved with uh, general derm and uh, psoriasis. When I moved on uh, from New York to Louisville, Kentucky, I opened my shop and I was the new kid on the block. So I had to do something, you know, to attract patients. You cannot just sit and wait for most referrals from other doctors. You gotta pay the bills. So I looked around and I realized that most of the dermatologists in Louisville, they go home at four o'clock, they have tea time at 4.30. So I said, well, I don't like to wake up early in the morning. I'm gonna start my hours at 11 o'clock in the morning and I'll go till eight, 8.30 in the evening. So that brought a lot of general derm patients. Literally, the school bus stops in front of my office building at 4 o'clock, and I get all the kids with acne, warts, atopic derm, you name it. Then I uh, realized that uh, there are a lot of patients driving 50 miles, 100 miles from far away to come and see me. I'm thinking, you know, I'm an okay dermatologist, but I'm not the best in town. Why are they coming to see me? So we looked into their demographics and we realized that they had one thing in common. They all had Kentucky Medicaid and I was the only schmuck dermatologist who accepts Kentucky Medicaid. So that's where they were coming to see me, not for me really, but so you can imagine how that made me feel like, but that's okay. Uh, so I, um, then I got involved with clinical trials. When you do clinical trials, you know, um, you give away free medicine you don't charge the patients. On top of that, you pay them. So, of course, that brought in a lot of uh, psoriasis patients. And then all those psoriasis patients have relatives with, who have psoriasis, who have relatives with, who have psoriasis. So the bottom line is, by default, I became the psoriasis center in Kentucky, and I even get patients from down Tennessee and up in Indiana. Um, I sort of like to do different things. I mean, that... Uh, I, I have a little bit of ADD, I guess. My wife thinks I have a lot of ADD, but that's a different story. So I don't like to cut most layers every day. I don't think I can inject Botox every day. So that's the reason why I went into dermatology. I like to do different things. So I like to do general derm, and that's how I get involved with um, psoriasis, and that's why I'm here today. Now, I do a lot of clinical studies, so I do receive funding from several different pharmaceutical companies, including uh, Warner Chilcott, which is the sponsor of this lecture today. Now, Psoriasis is certainly an unmet need. It's a very, very difficult disease to treat, as you all know. However, the scalp psoriasis itself, it's even more difficult to treat. All the old medications that we had, all the topicals, especially tar treatment, salicylic acid, those are really difficult to apply on the scalp. Um, they are messy, they smell, sometimes they cause hair discoloration, sometimes they cause hair loss. When you use systemic drugs for psoriasis, such as methotrexate or uh, so, uh, acetretin, you know, they work pretty well, but they cause hair loss. So for scalp psoriasis, they are difficult to use. Light treatments. Well, you think about the traditional light box, right? The light bulbs are vertical, so the patient stands in the light box vertically, you're missing the scalp. You, you can't give light treatment in a regular light box. Now, we do have a couple of handheld light treatment devices, 
but those are difficult to use also because either your nurse or the patient is going to hold it and you have to give that uniformly because you don't want to fry a couple of brains. I have done it in the past. You know, if you don't hold that uh, light device, you can burn the patient's scalp. So you have to sort of hold it uniformly and turn it around and move it around every 30 seconds, 60 seconds. So the bottom line is it is difficult to do the light treatments also for scalp psoriasis. So there is not an easy treatment. Most of the patients with psoriasis, almost 80% of them, uh, have scalp involvement. And if you think about it, most of the time, the only place that you will see people can cover their arms, their uh, legs, right? They can wear pants and they can wear long, um, long sleeves, but they cannot cover their head. They cannot cover their forehead. Most of the time, the scalp psoriasis will involve the, will involve the retrophoric auricular folds, sometimes the ears, sometimes the forehead. So it makes them really, um, it makes a difficult situation for the patients to cover. Uh, and that makes it uh, even um, worse psychologically. If you ask patients what distresses them the most, at least uh, itching is uh, one-third of the time is bothering them, and then scaling, the dandruff, you know, that uh, white stuff coming down on their shoulders, it really does bother them. So it becomes emotional situation. It becomes a socially embarrassing situation. You think about it, most men wear navy blue um, suits, right? Well, you can have all that white stuff coming down your hair on your shoulders. It's not going to look good. Most females, they cannot wear black dresses or dark color uh, blouses because, again, that white stuff is going to come down and it's not going to look good. So it does become a problem, and 57% of those patients, they report some kind of emotional distress. On top of that, if you are follicularly challenged like myself, and then if you have psoriasis, it's even going to look horrible. Not only you're bald, now you have all that stuff on, your, on top of your scalp. So it does make it worse, and it, it does make it difficult. Okay, so how many times this happens to you every day. Patient comes and says, hey, doc, please help me. I've been to Dr. Smith. I've been to Dr. Jackson. I've been to Dr. Um, uh, Jim. Uh, nobody can help me. Well, the first thing I ask, what did they give you? What did, what did you use? So they bring this plastic bag full of samples, full of medicines in it. So I start looking at them. Wow, that looks good. That's a good cream. That should work. Uh, then you start looking even a little bit more carefully. You know, the tube is not even open, or maybe it's used once, or maybe it's used twice. Two-thirds of the cream is still in the tube. So people don't use their medication as prescribed. It's a big problem, uh, and I don't know how to solve it, but at least we know the problem. We can identify it. Most patients expect that they're going to get better in a week maybe in a couple of days. So they use the stuff that you give them for a couple of days, and then if it doesn't work, they say, well, that doctor didn't help me, so they go to the next one. They go to the next one, they go to the next one, until somebody tells them that you have a disease that's chronic. It's not going to go away. Maybe we can manage it, and those drugs are not going to kick in in a week or two. So you have that short period of window that maybe you can get them better, so you need some agent that's going to work really fast. Fa rapid onset of action on your treatment is very, very important. Everybody in this culture, especially in this country, everybody wants to get better yesterday. 
I did this lecture last year at uh, EADV in Paris. The culture over there is a little bit different. You know, in Denmark, there are only 72 dermatologists in the whole country. In Canada, it's about six, 700 dermatologists. So even if they want to go to the next doctor, they cannot go to the next doctor. They cannot get in in six months or eight months. They need to get a referral over there. It's a different type of a healthcare system that they cannot just pay a copay, $10, $20, and see another dermatologist. In this country, we have that option. The patients have that option. You know, in New York City, in one block, there is about 56 dermatologists in one zip code, 10036. That's around 36th Street in Manhattan, right around NYU. Each building has about 20, 30 dermatologists. So you can go from one to another, go from one to another until they find the right answer. So the bottom line is what I'm trying to say is people want to get better yesterday. They want rapid treatment. They want to get better really quickly in this country. Unlike Europe, unlike Canada, we have a different type of a healthcare system that's available that they go from one doctor to another. So what, uh, this was a little survey, uh, and this is actually interestingly done by a Dutch doctor. And um, you know, people think that still, even over there, the treatment sometimes takes more, uh, too much time. But the most important thing is they want less application. If you have something once a day, versus twice a day, even one treatment, they're gonna be happier because it's easier to use. You can imagine, you know, every psoriasis patient get out of our offices with two, three prescriptions. They have something for the scalp, something for the body, maybe a vitamin D product, maybe a topical steroid, maybe a tar, maybe LCD, uh, you know, maybe a salicylic acid, but we give a lot of prescriptions. And then we ask them to apply this twice a day on the scalp, maybe shampoo the scalp, twice a day on the body. It gets difficult for those patients to do it. Uh, they always ask me, which one goes first? I said, I don't care. You use it one on top of another. I don't care in which order you use it, but use it. So what I'm trying to say is if you have something that you can use once a day, and if you have maybe a combination product, that's going to make life easier for the patients. This is one of those combination products that uh, shows before and after treatment, and you can see that in one week, you pretty good results. So it does have a quick onset of action. This is another one again. Uh, in a week, you're getting pretty good results. Eight weeks, the lesions are gone, and this is the, um, uh, this is the medication. This is calcipitrion, which is vitamin D, and betamethasone scalp solution. Let's look at the clinical trials. This was a very large clinical trial, almost 4,500 subjects. It's run all over the world, including US, Canada, uh, Europe, and United Kingdom. It was an eight-week study, and when you have a combination treatment, you have to show to agency, to FDA, that you are not only better than the vehicle or the placebo, but you're also better than the, each component of that combination. So it makes it quite difficult to prove efficacy and reach statistical significance. So you need a lot of subjects. That's why they had 4,500 subjects here. So they had to show that they are, not, they are not only better than the vehicle, but they are also better than the calcipitrion, as well as the betamethasone in this condition. Um, they had to have, for inclusion criteria, more than 10% of body, uh, I'm sorry, scalp involvement and then they can use up to 100 grams or less than 100 grams a week. And this is the uh, design of the study. 
eight weeks, either you get the real drug, the combination, or you get the betamethasone, or you get the calcipitrion in those vehicles, or the vehicle alone, and then they followed you for another 14 days. Here are the results. So at week two already, you're getting about 50, um, 56% uh, with the combination versus 46% with the betamethasone alone. If you are a little bit patient at week four, after a month, that number goes up to 66%. At week eight, you get 70%. But here comes the story that I was mentioning. Early onset of action is really important. So you're almost hitting the 56% of the patients. They are either clear or almost clear in the first week, and the first two weeks. So that's pretty important. Um, so at least if they use it, they're going to think, well, something is happening, it's getting better, so let me go ahead and finish the whole thing instead of calling another doctor and looking for another drug. And by week eight, you're getting about 70% um, clear or almost clear. Now, in Europe, they use the, it's called absence of disease or very mild disease instead of the almost clear. That's why you see that different nomenclature. But in this country, when we do clinical trials, we call that clear, almost clear. In Europe, they use it absence of disease. That's for clear. And almost clear is considered very mild disease. Um, if you look at the um, patients, uh, this is the against the calcipitrion here. They looked at it just against the... Um, Calcipitrion, which is a Dovonex scalp lotion. So you can see that the results are with the just vitamin D alone, it's very poor. But we know that already because we have a very large experience for the last 10 years with vitamin D products. And it does work slowly. It doesn't kick in that fast. That's why we have all the combination treatments with steroid. You know, I'm sure you have all heard Dr. Ku and Dr. Labo from Sinai. They always talk about combination treatment, rotational treatment, sequential treatment, whatever you want to call it. We always use the vitamin D products with um, combination with steroids. So here, if you have a combination already two in one, it makes sense that, of course, that's going to do better than the uh, calcipitrion alone. Uh, then they also had a safety study. Now, most of the time, FDA wants the drug companies to do long-term safety studies. Uh, if you look at the new literature, new studies, you can see that new acne, even the new acne products, such as Epiduo, Axon, they all have 52-week safety data. So this product also has a 52-week safety data. And then when you do the... Um, when they do the safety data, of course, it's an open label. It's not placebo. It's not, there is no blind, uh, placebo-blinded control. It's only open label. But they also look at the efficacy. Of course, if they're going to spend the money, they're going to look at the efficacy too, how it's going to do it, and they compare it to, in this case, again, to calcipitrion. And interesting enough, look, it takes a while. The green one is the calcipitrion, the Dovonex lotion scalp, and then the other one is the calcipitrion betamethasone, the Taclonex one. So when you see that, look at the uh, green line. It does take a while to kick in, as I already mentioned. That's, it's about 12, almost four months to reach about 80% uh, patient satisfaction. And by the way, that is defined as either clear, almost clear, or mild disease. So just remember that now the criteria is a little bit looser than the original study original study had clear or almost clear. In this case, they are, losing a little bit, they are using a little bit of loser criteria for patient success or patient satisfaction. It's clear, almost clear, or mild. 
But as we expected, vitamin D alone takes a while to kick in, till four months. So, but then it is steady. On the other hand, the combination product kicks in right away at the first four weeks. During the first four weeks, you're getting results. And then it does have a steady, it maintains that steady effect, which is nice to see. If you put a bar and that line is above 82%, so at any time during that 52-week study, those patients were either clear, almost clear, or mild, um, 82% of the time or more compared to the calcipitrion, which was right around 80% or below the 80% mark. So that's the difference uh, for maintenance treatment. So you can maintain it if you can use a combination product better than the vitamin D alone, but vitamin D alone does a good job too. It just takes a while to kick in. So remember, if you don't want to start a product, you don't want to start somebody on a vitamin D alone because it's going to take 16 weeks to get a result, then people is going to, patients are going to get upset. Okay, and then the other thing here, of course, if you use a topical steroid, it's important to look at the HPA axis suppression, and they certainly did, and there was about 16% after four weeks, and then 18% after eight weeks. But those are reversible, you stop the medicine, and it does reverse itself. Other than that, there was no clinical significant effect on the calcium levels uh, or calcium hemostasis since we're using a long-term calcium um, a vitamin D drug, people are concerned about that, but there were no problems. So the bottom line is 56% of the subjects achieved clear or almost clear at two weeks, again, early onset of action, and 70% achieved clear or almost clear by week eight at the end of the study. And the most important thing here that this was once-a-day dosing, and that's what the patients like, the convenience of once-a-day dosing in Two of two drugs in one combination. That's the most important thing, I think. And early onset of action will help you with the patient's confidence, and they're not going to go and look for something else. Now, how about this condition? Can you treat this condition with that product that I just mentioned? No. Remember what Cassandra said? At any time you see something on the scalp, the first thing you'll think about is fungal infection. This is tinea capitis, actually. And um, it's very, very common. So anytime on the scalp, uh, tinea capitis, always remember the fungus. One thing is easy to diagnose, especially in kids, if you check their occipital lymph nodes, if they have positive occipital lymph nodes, it's most likely tinea capitis unless proven otherwise. That's an easy tip. The other thing is, I'd like to do a fungal culture. Now, there is no scale here. You cannot do a KOH. KOH is not going to show much on the scalp. You need to pull some hair and put it in that fungal culture, send it away. It can take up to six weeks to get results. But do a fungal culture. Don't wait for the culture result to come back to start the oral griseofolvin. But do a fungal culture so that you can prove it uh, at the end of the six weeks, if they come back and they say, I'm not better for one reason or another, at least you have a culture result and you can sort of go back and look, was it really positive or was it negative? But KOH on the scalp is not going to work much. I don't do KOHs on the scalp. I just pull the hair 
and then put it in a uh, you know DTM and send it. So that's the best way to do it. But if the patient already has, especially in kids, if they have occipital lymph nodes, you know that that is uh, fungus and start the griseofolding right away. How about this? Can you treat this with griseofolding? Is this fungus? Um, it's not. It can be fungus. It does look like fungus. Uh, so now, first of all, I would do a fungal culture right away again because anytime you have some bald areas on the scalp, I would think about fungus. Common things are common, you know? But this is not. This is actually dissecting cellulitis of the scalp. Like many other things in dermatology, it's a misnomer. Uh, another name for it is perifolliculitis capitis abscidens et suffiens. I have no idea what it means, but I like it sounds French. So uh, anyway, the bottom line is it's an inflammatory condition of the scalp. It does affect the dermis, and it does cause scarring alopecia. That's really the bottom line. Most of the time, the hair is not going to grow back. And you can treat it with some, uh, you know, intralesional injections, with steroids. You can treat it some anti-inflammatory dose of antibiotics. You can treat it with some antibiotics sometimes to benefit from their anti-inflammatory effect. Topical steroids, topical antibiotics, you can treat anything and everything. It's a difficult condition. Once it reaches this stage, it's a difficult condition uh, to treat. And there are so many other conditions that looks like this. There is something called folliculitis decalvan. The bottom line is they are all the inflammatory conditions of the hair follicles of the scalp that may cause scarring cicatricial alopecia. And that's the key thing to mention to the patients that, yes, if you have that hair loss, it may not come back. Now, the other thing here that I think um, we should consider is I would look at the these patients' palms and soles. Remember, Cassandra said, don't forget about secondary syphilis. Sometimes those patients, they have also hair loss that may look like this, uh, or that may not, but you don't have much to lose to order an RPR just in case. How about this one? This is a kid, scalp. Common things are common. It is tinea capitis. It's really a bad one. Uh, actually, this picture is from Iraq, and uh, it's really a bad case of tinea capitis. Uh, he probably had a, what we call this carrion, the inflammatory condition, and uh, sometimes they have thick crust. So one thing you have to do, if it's that inflammatory fungus, you may try some topical steroids, even oral steroids for a short period to get that inflammation away, to calm that carrion down, and then these thick crusts it's not going to come off. You actually manually have to pick it or debride it. Or um, sometimes I tell them, let the shower run on it. Try to debride it. Uh, sometimes um, um, physical therapy, you know, they do that uh, um, debridement and stuff. Things like that will help to get that thick scale out. And sometimes the hair may or may not come back, which can be devastating with kids. But uh, again, culture, culture, culture. How about this one? Now, this is uh, actually treatment for actinic keratosis. So this patient got Epidex for the AKs on his scalp, and Epidex does have a crisp reaction, and then that reacted area got secondarily infected. So it looks like not, you know, it looks like, like a bad infection, but it's actually, it happened 
from the aphidex and then the uh, and then it got secondarily infected. But you know you can clear this up, and it's probably in a month that scalp is going to feel like baby's buttocks. It's nice and smooth because aphidex works pretty well for AKs. Okay, what else can we use uh, topical steroid-wise? Uh, you know, vehicle is very important in dermatology. We do uh, a lot of topicals. It's a whole. It's a topical business, right? And it's not the active that matters. It's the vehicle that matters. That's why we have clebetazole foam. We have clebetazole spray. We have clebetazole shampoo. We have clebetazole uh, lotion gel. I always wonder, do we need all those new vehicles? And I think we do. When you look at the results, at the clinical study results, how ointment differs from the foam or the cream or the lotion or the gel differs from the spray. It's amazing. And the reason is, it's the same active ingredient. It's the same active medicine. But it's the vehicle that matters because whatever you're putting on, it does enhance the penetration of that molecule into the skin. Because you can put the most powerful molecule on the skin. If it doesn't penetrate, it's not going to do its job. That's the whole point that vehicle is very, very important. I always wonder, you know, is there a really difference between the generic and brand name? Well, maybe there isn't a big difference between a generic and brand name when you're taking a cholesterol pill or a blood pressure pill. But there is certainly a big difference when it comes to topical treatment because the topical treatment is based upon the vehicle and how that molecule penetrates. Is there an penetration enhancer? Is there absorption? And how far it will absorb? That's the other thing. If you want to avoid the side effects of a topical drug, right, you don't want that to be absorbed into the bloodstream. That's how you get the side effects. You want that to stay in the skin, penetrate and stay in the skin, but not go further down into the bloodstream. That's the key, and that's where the vehicle matters, and that's what separates the brand names from the generic in dermatology, in topical treatment. I have no idea about the oral treatment, but that's the deal. So... Betametazone foam has been around for a while, and it is actually approved for any steroid-responsive dermatosis of the scalp, including psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, or contact dermatitis, or whatever you want to use it for. Now, there are different forms. This foam is in a hydroethanolic form, so it's alcohol-based. If you open on an open area, especially on the tips of the fingers, if there are cracks and fissures, it's going to burn. So you have to choose your foam. We are more sophisticated now. There is hydroethanolic foam. There is emollient foam. So if you use an emollient foam, it's just like having Vaseline in it. It doesn't burn and sting. If you put the wrong foam in the wrong place, the patients are not going to be happy. But hydroethanolic foam, the alcohol-based foam, is great for scalp. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want to put that on the tip of the fingers of a patient where there are cracks and fissures. It's going to burn and sting. You want to use an emulsion foam. Uh, so it's important also to recognize the right foam and where it should go. This was a large study, again, 15-center randomized double-blinded study, and they compared the betametazone foam versus the placebo foam versus the betametazone lotion versus the placebo lotion. And here you see what I just mentioned, that betametazone lotion, it's the same active, how it's going to differ from the foam. 
twice a day, they used it for scalp psoriasis. More than 72% uh, of the patients with the foam had more than 90% response versus 47% of the betamethasone lotion. That's a big difference. So if you use the lotion, yeah, you're getting a response, but not as much as you would with the foam. And how come? It's the same drug. The difference is the vehicle. If you look at the opposite side, if you turn the coin and look at the opposite side, less than 25% response, four, only 4% 4 of the subjects had less than 25% of response with the foam, and then 19% of the subjects had less than 25% response with the betamethasone lotion. So the bottom line is vehicle matters. Always remember that. When it comes to topical treatment, vehicle matters. It's very, very important what vehicle you choose. Can you treat this condition with a topical steroid? Yes. This is just contact dermatitis of the scalp. No big whoop. How about this one? Now we're looking into seborrheic dermatitis. It's a very, very common condition. It involves the face and the scalp, as you also, almost 50% of the population has it. And any topical steroid, any tar uh, will help. It does affect sometimes the retroauricular folds. It does look like psoriasis, but sometimes it's different. It's different to differentiate from psoriasis. Sometimes it's not. Most of the time, septoderm involves the whole scalp. If you have psoriasis, you have large demarcated, well-demarcated plaques that it's more local. It doesn't always involve the whole scalp, but it may. And then the, the scale is a little bit different with psoriasis. You have that nice silvery grayish scale where with septoderm it's more whitish, more diffuse. And here you can get some um, um, dandruff. What's this one? Can you treat this with topical steroids? Yes, you can. This is discoid lupus. This is a nice picture of discoid lupus. It's burned out lupus around the concentric area. You know, the borders are burned out, but in the middle still you have some active inflammation. You're going to have it mostly on the uh, African-American patients, Hispanic patients, females, but you can see it at anybody. Um, it's difficult to treat. You can see nice follicular plugging, some follicular scale. Uh, those are nice diagnostic um, morphology, but it doesn't always look like the way it's supposed to uh, if it's specially burned out. But the key is you do have here cicatricial alopecia. Basically, it's scarred. Once it's scarred, you're not going to get hair back. Uh, you certainly can use intralesional steroids. I do it a lot. And then um, if the patient doesn't like the needles, they don't want to come back every month, I think topical steroids such as the betamethasone foam or clobetazole foam or clobetazole spray would be a good choice to use it. Um, usually those are limited small areas, so I'm not concerned about the amount of steroid you're using. Um, and, you know, it's already atrophic, so how, how worse can you make it if it's already atrophic? So, uh, and then sometimes you may get lucky, you get the hair back, but usually not. How about this one? This is really an unusual condition. I, I don't see it that much. This is from Egypt, this picture. It's lichen planopilaris. It's basically like lichen, um, uh, lichen planus of the scalp, but the bottom line is you may get some scarring and you may lose the hair, and then if you lose the hair, it's not going to come back again. Uh, any topical steroids will be fine, uh, steroid injection will be fine for this. But those are, the bottom line is those are the scarring alopecias. Those are difficult to treat, and once it's there, it's difficult to get rid of. 
This patient also, okay, how about this one? This was a carry-on, and this was fungal, uh, fungal infection, basically. And it left uh, uh, alopecia. So even though it was treated uh, with griseofolvin, so sometimes the carry-on, do you remember that kit that I showed you who had the same thing? Uh, sometimes it can end up with uh, scarring alopecia. How about this one? This is acnecleoidalis nuca. It's very common in uh, African-American patients. It's usually on the occipital scalp, on the back of the neck. Uh, it's difficult to treat. It's a chronic condition. One thing I tell, I tell patients, you know, in dermatology, most of the stuff that we deal with is chronic. It's really difficult to treat, uh, and it's not going to go away. So from the get-go, psoriasis patients, acne patients, eczema patients, I always tell them, you have a chronic disease. I wish you had a skin cancer. I can cut it out and be done with it, but it's not. And it's almost like, and I give this example of diabetes, right? Diabetic patients, they have to take their insulin all the time. So consider it a disease just like that, that whatever you're doing, unfortunately, you have to keep doing it to maintain the clearance or to maintain the success. Otherwise, it's going to come back. And that's a very difficult thing to get patients accept that they always say, in this day and age, there is no cure doctor. Unfortunately, there isn't. And <clears throat> psoriasis is number one for that problem. With all the million-dollar biologicals, all that money that we're spending, $30,000, $40,000 a year, we don't have a cure. It's all, we, all we do is maintain it or uh, maintain the treatment success, but we don't have a cure. So it is important to remind those patients so that when they come back and they say, I paid you $40 copay, you didn't make me any better. Well, unfortunately, it's not me. It's not the disease, it's the disease that you have. So in this condition, intralesional injections, topical steroids, topical antibiotics, oral antibiotics, you know, you can try anything and everything, uh, but uh, sometimes it goes away for a long time. Sometimes it comes back. But I think the important thing is to start the conversation. I always say it's a chronic condition. Do you know what that means? Now, I live in Kentucky, so I have to make sure that people know what it means. <laughs> so, we're back to psoriasis. Um, here, this is pretty red and inflamed. And um, see, the, the, the uh, scale is different than the septderm scale. It's really a little bit, it's almost greasy looking and silvery looking. It's a different type of a scale in the psoriasis. So, uh, sometimes you can differentiate and you can say that it is not seborrheic dermatitis. Of course, you have to examine the rest of the body, and if somebody has elbows and knees and other body part involvement, then you know it's going to be psoriasis because it's more common that somebody who has psoriasis on their body is going to have psoriasis on their scalp, not seborrheic dermatitis. But it's only the scalp involvement and it might be difficult to differentiate if it's septderm or if it's psoriasis. So morphology becomes more important. If they have it on the body, then it's easier to differentiate. You can make a safer diagnosis. And worse come to worse, you don't know what it is. Nobody is going to blame you for doing a biopsy. As Cassandra mentioned, delay to diagnosis is a problem. So nobody can sue you that you did a biopsy because it's okay to say, I don't know what it is. And it's okay to say, I'm looking for what it is, and that's why you do a biopsy. That's what the biopsies are for. Here, this is even a better example of that nice, thick scale. Now, we use a lot of shampoos, but there is actually only one shampoo, clebotazole shampoo, in the market. 
there's tar shampoo, there's salicylic acid shampoo, there are a bunch of different shampoos. There's, uh, you know, antifungal shampoos that we use for psoriasis. But if you think about it as a steroid-wise, there is only one steroid shampoo, which is chlorobetazole shampoo. So it's not a leave-on product. It's a, you, you put it on for 15 minutes and then you wash it off. Um, and this was approved by FDA for a long time ago, so I'm not going to mention the pivotal studies. However, what I'm going to mention is the, a new study. It was done in Canada for maintenance. And I think I cannot emphasize enough the importance of maintenance because we are dealing with a chronic disease. You know, it's very interesting. You look at those biologicals, and everybody comes and tries to, inf they try to influence you with their PASI 75 scores at week 14 or week 16, right? They say, we have PASI 75, 78% at week 14. And my answer is, I'm not interested what happens at week 14. I'm interested what happens down the line in six months or in 12 months, even at two years, because all those drugs are to be used for years and years. You have a chronic disease. Psoriasis is not a 14-week disease. Psoriasis is not a three-month disease. Psoriasis is a lifelong disease. And it's very ironic if you look at, if you read their package insert, for example, the one that just came in the market, you stuck it up. It's a great drug. It clears it very nicely. I have a bunch of people on the clinical studies on that. But the package insert says it's sort of, uh, you cannot use it more than a week or we don't know the safety of more, I mean, more than a year. I'm sorry, not more than a week. So, well, you have a lifelong disease and if I'm afraid to use it for more than one year, what's going to happen? I, I can tell the patient, okay, I'm going to clear it for a year and then come back and don't come back because I cannot give you the drug anymore. So it's really important to think about long term how to deal with those patients because you're dealing with a chronic problem, not a week 14, 14 week or 16 week disease. So all those PASI 75 scores, 80%, 90% is meaningless. Unless somebody's getting married next week and you wanna clear her that up, it's great, drug, use it. But for long term, you gotta think about it. So I like this study because they have a maintenance data. Um, so first, you have the acute phase. There are two phases of this study, the initial phase, the four-week phase, and then they have the maintenance data for six months. For inclusion criteria, the global severity score had to be either two or more, meaning mild disease, moderate disease, or severe disease in order to be in. And then um, they also looked at the other uh, characteristics of the scale, uh, I mean, of the lesions, including the scale and the plaque and the erythema, plaque thickness, as well as the itching and the extent of the disease. Now, of course, patients with any other drugs, they were excluded. They, didn't, they couldn't be on the study if they, had, they used other steroids or light treatment or uh, systemic drugs. That's normal for any study. It was a multicenter, single-arm, open-label study again, because it's a maintenance study, and uh, the investigator was double-blinded, and this was done in Canada. So here is, the, um, here is the design of the study. The first four weeks was the acute phase. Everybody used the drug, and in order to be included, they had to be at least uh, two or more, meaning mild, severe, moderate, or severe. And then if they cleared up, um, they were, uh, if they cleared or if they got better than two, then they were sort of rolled over to the next six months maintenance dose. If they got worse, 
if their disease got worse, meaning global severity score became more than two, then they were uh, withdrawn, they were dropped out because you know if somebody is not doing well by using the drug every day, they certainly not gonna do it well by using it twice a week. So ethically, you cannot keep those people in, so they were dropped out of the study. So this is only a maintenance for the responders to this shampoo. So you do have a little bit of bias there, but the bias is for a good reason because that's what you do in your clinical practice. You give something to somebody and then they come in four weeks. If they are not doing well, if they are not responding, you're not going to tell them, go home and continue using this drug twice a week now instead of once uh, every day. So, but if they are using something and it works every day, then you, you want to tell them, go home and use it maybe once a week or twice a week. So the bottom line is the people who did not respond, they were dropped off. And then the responders were kept in the study for six months and they were asked to use the shampoo now twice a week instead of every day. So that's the key. And then they were looked at every month, every four weeks. When they come back, if their score went from mild to moderate or severe, they were asked to use the shampoo back again every day. This really reflects very, very much like what we do in our clinical practice. So they came back in a month again. If they did not respond, they were still, um, they were still moderate or severe, then they were dropped off the study. If they got better, they were told to continue to shampoo twice a week. So the study design is a little bit difficult to um, explain, but I hope um, everybody understood. So if they were basically not responders, they were dropped. If they had two relapses, they were dropped, two consecutive relapses. If they, did not, if they had only one relapse, they were told to go back home and use it every day instead of twice a week. So if you look at the results, again, this is the acute phase results now. 58% of the patients had moderate, and 42% of the uh, patients had severe scalp psoriasis, and this is in the beginning at baseline. And look what's happening here. So at the end of the study, at week four, 78% of the subjects had either clear, almost clear, or mild at week four. So all those patients, they were, we sort of, they, we lumped them. But if you look at the, just the severe patients, for example, we started at uh, baseline with 42% severe patients, only 4% were left severe at week four. So that's a big, big decrease from 42% to 4% for severe scalp psoriasis. And this is just a shampoo, not, it's, a, it's not a live-on product. Here are some pictures. Uh, so at week four, 78% of the subjects had less than uh, uh, mild disease. 33% of the subjects were either clear or very mild or almost clear. Again, in Canada, Canada usually follows the Europe. They follow very mild instead of saying almost clear. But in U.S., we use clear or almost clear. The each was significantly improved. The each went down from 75% to 27% in two weeks. And remember, the very first slide that I showed, people with scalp psoriasis, the one thing that bothers them the most is pruritus. Uh, and it had a good safety profile. Now, let's take a look what happened 
in the maintenance phase. Again, I think that's more important. What happens in the maintenance phase? And we're going to measure that with the number of the relapses. So 50% of the subjects had any relapse after 58 days with clobetazole shampoo versus 29 days with the vehicle alone. So that's any relapse, 58 days. That includes any moderate or severe relapse. How about just a, um, just a moderate relapse? So that means if they, were start, they started with the study with uh, clear, almost clear, they became moderate. So that's number three on the global severity score. That's 144 days. So 140, it took them 144 days to become moderate. So that's, that's interesting. That's versus the 31 days with the vehicle. So by using the shampoo just twice a week, not every day, for a whole six months, uh, it took 144 days. It's almost uh, um, six months, close to six months. Well, no, it's about five months. So, uh, yeah, five months. So it was close to five months until they became moderate. And if you look at the overall number of days, the mean days of to relapse, first relapse was 94 days with the shampoo uh, versus 57 days with the vehicle. So mean number of days was 94 to any relapse, to the very first relapse, I should say. But it could be moderate or severe. So those are pretty impressive because those patients are quite miserable. And if you can just using a shampoo twice a week uh, and maintain them, and it will take 94 days for a first relapse, that's, that's three months that, that's going to keep them away from you. How about the number of the relapses? Let's count the number of the relapses. With the clobetazole shampoo, you had 31% no relapse uh, versus 8% with the vehicle. If you look at the two relapses or three relapses, there is a big difference. 9% with the shampoo had only two relapses versus 25% with the vehicle. 8% uh, with the shampoo had three relapses, 18% with the vehicle. One relapse, it's interesting, 22% with the vehicle, 26% with the shampoo. Not much difference there. But I think the number, the higher the uh, relapse number is, the more significant with the uh, active. The difference is more significant with the active. The other important issue is every time we use clebetazole, uh, it's class 1 steroid. We do worry about the HPA axis suppression. Well, there was no significant case of, uh, there was no actually in the active, in the clebetazole shampoo, there was no HPA axis suppression. Now, granted, it's only uh, 15 minutes on, right? It's not a live-on product, so probably that's why. But it's very interesting that one person had uh, HPA axis suppression with the vehicle. Any suggestions? I bet you that patient cheated, used some strong steroid on the side. <laughs> it happens all the time. Probably he was sick and tired of it, and he wanted to stay in the study, but he, I'm sure he got his hands on some kind of a uh, lotion or gel, and he used it. That. Otherwise, how, how are you going to get HPA axis suppression with the vehicle alone? So, but anyway, the bottom line is the important point here is that the, with the shampoo, there is no HPA axis suppression. So you don't have to worry about it uh, if you use it long-term on maintenance twice a week. 
Okay, can you treat this condition with chlorobetazole shampoo? I hope not. This is nevus sebaceous of jettison. Um, it's actually not an inflammatory condition, but I thought I would throw in there because it's red. Uh, mostly it does have that orangish, yellowish hue, uh, and it is congenital, uh, or it's, it starts at childhood. Probably it is advisable to excise it right around or after puberty because about 9, 10, maybe 12% of the time it can become a lesion called syringocyst adenoma papilliferum, which is benign in itself, but then another 10, 15% of the time it can turn into a basal cell carcinoma. And that's why you don't want it, you want to excise it at one point. You don't have to do it when you see the kid when he's five or six years old because, you know, it's difficult to do anything to do any surgery on those kids unless uh, you give them anesthesia. I wouldn't do that. But, you know, when they can tolerate local anesthesia, it's a good idea to get rid of it and be done with it so you don't have to worry about it. But it is not an inflammatory condition even though sometimes it's red and orange. And sometimes it's linear. It's pretty, like, uh, long. So it makes life easier because if you do a nice excision, elliptical excision so you can close it nicely. Okay, you know, we're talking about scalp psoriasis and most of the studies, especially the topical studies that we do, um, we don't include the scalp because it's a difficult area to take pictures, it's a difficult area to measure the psoriasis. You can't see it that well. So when we do studies, we exclude the scalp actually, for topicals. And all the biological studies, none of them looked at scalp, believe it or not, separately. Uh, Remicade in Felixumab has some nail studies, but nobody has a scalp except Ephalusumab, which was Raptiva, which is gone. So I was actually doing a um, double-blinded placebo-controlled study for Raptiva uh, when, unfortunately, the PML case happened, and then they sort of stopped the study. But in, we have some studies from Latin America for efaluzumab that worked for scalp pretty well. But it is ironic that with all the multi-million dollar biologicals, we don't have scalp data. Uh, and that's because nothing works for scalp that well. That's why people don't want to look at it. But also, it is difficult to measure scalp psoriasis. Lately, they did come up with an index and it's called Psoriasis Scalp Severity Index, PSSI. It's basically reflects what we do, the PASI, um, for the body. So here you have um, erythema in duration and thickness of the plaque, which you add those up, and it can be anywhere from 0 to 4. 0 is absent, and 4 is very severe. And it's just, just like we do that in the PASI. But instead of doing the body surface area, in this case, we do scalp surface area, and then the scalp surface area, if it's less than 1%, it's considered, I'm, I'm sorry, if it's less than 10%, it's 1. If it's anywhere from 90 to 100%, it's 6. So the range is from 1 to 6. So that number that says involved area, so you put that number there, either 1, 2, 3, or 4, 5, 6, and then you multiply that with the addition of the erythema in duration and the squamation, you come up with your PSSI, and it's exactly like the PASI score because it ranges from 0 to 72. So they made it in a way that it's sort of uniform with the PASI. And then the results will be reported with like PASI 75, PASI 50. So here it will be reported as 
PSSI 50, PSSI 70. So uh, one study that they did in Latin America with efaluzumab, it included 172 patients, an open-label study, and the median score of PSSI was 16. The lowest was, of course, 1. The highest was 54 in that study. And then if you look at this, is again for efaluzumab, for Raptiva, it's, it's sort of, it makes it irrelevant at this point since it's not available in this country anymore. But I think it's interesting to see that Patients with this drug, they achieve, 52% of them achieved more than 75% improvement, and then 71% had PSSI of 50. So that's, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, and then if you keep using the drug over time, you're getting better results. At week four, 28% of the patients had median improvement in the PSSI. Uh, if you keep using it at week 24, at six months, you got 77%. Again, you know, all those biologicals, we saw those results. If you look at most of them at six months, the numbers go down or they level off. You know, you get that PASI 75 at 82% patients had PASI 75 at week 14. Well, at week um, 24 or at week 52, that number goes down to somewhere about 60% or 55%. So the bottom line is it's interesting that here that number is going up versus going down. And that's one thing you see with the T-cell drugs. Unlike the TNF-alpha inhibitors, they level off. The T-cell drugs, if you keep using it, you're going to get better results. And that's what happened with Raptiva. That's what happens with Amovib. It's very interesting. The T-cell drugs, they change your immune system, and you get response very slowly but increasing level. With TNF-alpha inhibitors, it works very fast, but then it sort of levels, levels off. It's interesting, the mode of action, the mechanism of action of the drug. Okay, can you treat this condition with uh, topical steroid or, or a steroid shampoo? This is actually lice. Look at the needs. So don't mix it with the dandruff. Sometimes it's easy to mix it, but the, with the needs, you know, you see those eggs. It's difficult to get rid of it. Okay, how about this one? That's really a nice picture of psoriasis. You can see that thick silver um, um, plaque there. Here's another one, and you can see there is some hair loss. Sometimes you can get hair loss, but with psoriasis, most of the time you can get it back. Unlike those scarring alopecias that I showed you, uh, it's not the same. You, don't, you lose the hair, but you can get it back. It's usually not scarred. Here's another one. Now, one thing is um, we have not mentioned is the coal tar. Coal tar is probably the first drug that has been used over 2,000 years. I mean, it's been around for a long time. I remember we used to use it a lot when I was a resident. Uh, and then there is the artificial, the, uh, the LCD one, liquid carbonous detergent, which is sort of equal to 10% LCD is equal to 2% coal tar. And that's still available. And we used to mix it a lot. Um, with steroids, with salicylic acid, and I don't even know the stability-wise. You know, now, as we go along, we're learning more and more stuff. If you mix two drugs, are, is it stable? Are they activated? Are they deactivated? You know, we know that from the betamethasone and the uh, salicylic acid and the vitamin D, if you mix those things, they're not stable together. So it's important uh, to think about that, but we used to do it in the old days. I remember when I was a resident, we did all that stuff. Now, this is actually the tar in this country is over the counter. It's a monograph, 
and it can be used anytime, anywhere from half percent to five percent concentration, and it is approved for psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, any dermatitis of the scalp. Um, but you have to sort of put the ingredients there. Now, this is the new tar. There is a new tar. Uh, it's a foam. It's Cytara. It, it doesn't smell as bad. They actually have a nice uh, smell to it. It's not like it used to be. And then they have a nice sort of greenish, uh, yellowish color. And guess what happens if you put it on your hair? No, I'm kidding. It is actually it's not from the foam. Can anybody guess what's this from? Pool. It's from the um, chlor uh, chlorinated pool. But I always, I always thought maybe it can be from the foam, but it's not. Uh, anyway, so what does the uh, tar do? Uh, you know, when we don't know, we can say that it does everything. So basically, it does have some anti-mitotic activity. It does help with the itching. It does have some anti-inflammatory effect. And then it certainly has photosensitizing effect, right? Because remember the gecurement? That's what we used to do. Put the people in the tar bath and then put them in the light box. Uh, then you will increase the effect of the light. But it does really decrease the uh, keratinocyte proliferation, the epidermal hyperplasia. So that's one thing we do know, and that's why it does work for psoriasis. Um, the study is because, look, it's not a, a real drug. I shouldn't say it's not a real drug. It's the over-the-counter stuff, so people are not going to do serious studies for this. But there are very small studies. One study, uh, this was done in Europe again. 18 patients, really very, very small. It's almost like an insult as a real study, but it gives you an idea. They compared it against the uh, moisturizer, and it was a split-body study. When you look at it, you know, the tar did better than the moisturizer, which you expected. That was 5% cold tar LCD. Now, when they compared it to calcipitrion, that's interesting. You know, you expected that it's going to do better than the moisturizer. But this is, again, a split-body uh, study. One side got the uh, tar, and one side got the calcipitrion cream. 20 patients, and they looked at it every two weeks, week two, week four, week six, week eight. And the tar did as well as the calcipitrion. But, you know, again, calcipitrion kicks in very slowly. Remember what I said, you're not going to see results with the calcipitrion for four months, five months it works very slowly. So that's what's happening here, probably. At eight weeks, the tar is doing as well as the calcipitrion. But in the old days, everybody used the tar, and it did help. So uh, one problem with the tar, there is that perception of the carcinogenicity and teratogenicity. So that's really a problem. Uh, and then long-term use with more than 5% concentration is certainly not recommended. Uh, most of those studies are done really in vitro about the carcinogenicity and teratogenicity. So, um, you know, you can sort of question it. If you look at the studies, this is interesting. If you look at the non-melanoma skin cancers with the tar population, with the patients that were treated with tar, with psoriasis, uh, and then compare it to the regular population in different areas, look at that. With the actual incidence with the cold tar in psoriasis patients, 19. If you look at patients who were not treated with the tar, expected incidence rate in Minneapolis, it's 18.8, which is very close to 19. San Francisco, more than the tar patients, 23. Iowa, 15. Dallas, 49. So I guess there's a lot of skin cancers in Dallas. That's why we have a lot of 
most surgeons in Dallas. But anyway, so really more than the patient population that was treated with psoriasis. If you look at the atopic derm population, it's interesting with the atopic derm population that were treated with TAR, the numbers are a little bit more, 11 versus 6.7, 9.4, 5.3, and then in Dallas, it's more again. So I don't think any of those is really conclusive, but it sort of gives you an idea that I don't think we have to go crazy that the TAR causes cancer, but skin cancers, but this is some guidelines that those are little numbers, but it's something to think about. Now, in California, you know, there's a lot of um, earthy, crunchy people there, so they put it on the label that it does cause cancer, and that's on the labeling. It's part of the Proposition 65, and it's the law you have to put it in the label, but um, that's California. I think, uh, and those are the different TARs that are available in the market, and the foam tar, that's the Cytara foam, which is, uh, you know, it doesn't smell as bad as I mentioned, and it's the foam, it's easier to use, and the, it doesn't stain, which is important. You know, it's, I remember when I was a resident, somebody got sued. Guess why? Because they gave a tar bath to the patient, and, you know, tell them, put it in the bathtub, and then get in there, and the patient, this lady, had a very fancy marble bathtub, and the marble bathtub got stained by the tar, and she was very, very mad, and it, you know, it didn't come off, and it, she had to change this bathtub, and it cost her a lot of money, and she sued the doctor. Now, ironically, it is not malpractice, so malpractice insurance wouldn't cover it, because really, it didn't hurt the patient, right? By definition, it's not malpractice. So if you think about it now. So you have to defend yourself out of your pocket. Unless somehow you have a general liability insurance that may cover you. But most of the time, general liability insurance will cover you if somebody falls or slips in your office or something like that. So this is such a gray zone that nobody was able to cover this doctor because general liability wouldn't cover, malpractice wouldn't cover, I was, I was like unbelievable. It was really a funny story, but it was a sad story. So I always remember that, and I never give tar for bathtub after that. Or you better ask if they have a fancy schmancy marble bathtub. So just remember that. I think this is the end of my spiel. If you have any questions, that's my email. Feel free to send me an email. I'll be more than happy to answer it. Or if you have any questions, I am back here. I can answer any questions. Yes. I cannot hear you. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. What, what, um, I said, what antibiotics do you use for folliculitis to Calvin's? Do you use rifampin and minocycline, and for how long? You know, I like minocycline because of the oral, because of the anti-inflammatory effect. So I tried to pick something not only anti-infective, but has some anti-inflammatory effect. Um, I know we used rifampin when I was a resident. I don't use it that much, and I don't see it that much, in all honesty. I mean, if I count it within the last 10, 12 years, I may, maybe I had five, six patients. Okay. Yeah, I've had a couple this year. I'm but sorry? I've had a couple patients this year. What did you use? I used rifampin and minocycline, but did I didn't know work? how long it did. It actually decreased the inflammation, but they still had the, you know, the alopecia, but the, 
the inflammation is yeah, gone? Yeah, the inflammation was gone. That's nice about, to know. About three or four weeks. How much minocycline did you use? Um, I think I did 100 milligrams BID, and then the rifampin, I honestly can't remember right now, but... Yeah. I mean, that, we used to do it, I remember that, but I don't see that much, so I don't have yeah. that much experience, in all honesty. Okay. But I like anything that's anti-inflammatory, you know, minocycline is, doxycycline is, that would yeah. help. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for your attention.